Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Like a Real Book Club podcast. Christina, you just distracted me. <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna do that again. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Like a Real Book Club, a podcast from Rebel Women Lit where we talk about books and just about everything else. I'm Jorane. I'm Christina. And I'm Ashley. And today we're going to be talking about our January book club pick, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filo. I think her name's too easy for me to mess it up. Filio. Or Filio. Philly. Filio. I don't know. I don't think it's Philly. It's not Philly. It's like... Anyways. So really excited to talk about The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filo. Hopefully I'm saying her name right. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed this book and I wanted it to be our first book club pick for 2022. Not only because it's a pretty short book, but it's also very spicy and I think it sets the right tone that I want for 2022. Yes, and I loved this book, which... I don't think that I expected to love it. Um, I Not that you necessarily go into a book knowing that you love it or hate it, hate it, but I did not expect to love this as much as I did. It was so hilarious. I did not expect it to be hilarious, but it was so hilarious in some parts. It was difficult in others. It was heartbreaking in others. It was contemplative in others. I keep saying others because it's a collection of stories in this book. But yeah, I really I really loved it. And I think it was absolutely the perfect kind of book to start the year with or to start the book club year with because it just gives you so much to think about and it gets you very excited to read more. So yeah. Well, you guys know me. Um, habits are hard to break. So unfortunately, I didn't finish this book, but I do really like it so far. I am three stories in, so I'm at Peach Cobbler. Um, I started reading it late because I had some life stuff going on. Um, but uh, as Christina said, and Jorian too, it's really lighthearted, um, funny. Actually, first started reading it when I was standing in line at the tax office because I had to renew something on my car. And I was outside waiting for an hour and a half. <laughs> so I said, this is a perfect time to start the book. And it was, uh, of course, Eula, I think, is the first one. My girl. Like, I mean, we can jump. Can I jump right into the, the stories? Because uh, mess, mess. Or let's summarize it first. Oh, yeah. So The Secret Life of Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia. Uh, it's a collection of nine stories from the perspective of Black American women who have had some kind of relationship with church, whether they were active and devout Christians slash churchgoers, or they're just people who have lived their lives being directed by church or influenced by church ideals in some way, whether through mother, grandfather, grandmother. Uh, and Disha, some of the themes that Disha explores, which are really, which she did really well, I think, included sexuality and queerness, pleasure, grief, family, girlhood, gender, religion, a whole bunch of shit. Can I say that? <laughs> and Where's Christina? she does them in a very... 
<laughs> she does them in a very artful, subtle, and succinct way. And I think we get so much from these small stories. It packs such a huge punch. I hate cliches, but this one feels very apt. So yeah, let's dive into this. Um, I just want to reiterate to our audience because I know this is the first time in a little while that we have um, put out a episode, but uh, this is a spoil. This is a is a zone that embraces spoilers. So I'm okay if uh, we're talking about the book and I'm not finished because that just gets me excited about reading it. But let me just jump right into you, Law, because mess. And I was here for it. You know why? Because I find a lot of pleasure reading something in public that is sassy and snarky and nobody really knows what I'm, I'm, I'm doing. And I feel like I'm just in this little world by myself. And that little story offered me a lot of comfort when I was in the tax office doing a very mundane task. Um, it was just... Uh, and you see the thing about it is that I could understand exactly where the two protagonists were coming from Yulo and I think Carol Leto is the other person's name um and what I do like about the show Filio is that uh, I find that I'm not always thinking about the gender of uh, the characters and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but I find that they the characters are just strong on their own and I don't need to always remember, oh, this is a woman or this is a man or, oh, this is a whatever. But uh, it that story in particular really took me back to my days of being in... I mean, I, I don't think I've been... I'm not... I wouldn't say I'm a very, like, or grew up very, in a very strict Christian household, but uh, I definitely have my fair share of uh, Christian summer camps and Bible studies and youth choir and all of those things and the compartmentalization that we do because we don't want to see is crazy it's beyond this world so that really took me back because that Eula and she's in a full-on relationship with this with Carletta and the fact that she never even thought about it that way because Carletta is a woman is heartbreaking but also very very real I feel like that was a very authentic story because there's so many of us that are jumping through those those hoops just to um classify ourselves as something that we really are not so I I mean just starting off with that that story was good um I liked it a lot I don't know what did you guys think about that story but I loved Eula I think Eula was a beautiful and complex way and a very strong start for the book so if anyone if you haven't read it yet uh, a quick summary of Eula is there is a well two women I think they're both in the church they're both in the church one more so than the other who are obviously having lots of sex but one of the women still sees herself as a virgin and she is waiting on a husband. She's waiting on God to provide her with a husband. And 
the story is told from the perspective of the other woman who is a lot more open with her sexuality. Um, I wouldn't say out there completely, but she doesn't have any delusions about the fact that they're having sex and that they enjoy each other's company. And I think there is a, like an underlying sense of longing for... Her name's Carla, all right? Um, yeah. Carlita is longing for Eula. Eula is the yeah, one who's so a little there's bit this underlying sense of, There's an underlying sense of Carlita longing for Eula to come to terms that they are not just really, really, really close friends that have very interesting sex every New Year's Eve, but that they may potentially have a relationship and that this relationship goes against a lot of what they may traditionally have been taught in church. So I think that's that's a very, very intense start for the book and I really enjoyed it. Journey forgot to mention that these two women are maybe close to being middle-aged. I got the feeling that they're in their late 30s, closing to early 40s. And um, for Eula, that was a huge yeah. deal because, uh, I mean, you know, she's been waiting for the perfect husband that God will send her for a really long time and it still hasn't happened. So and, and while she waits, she has this very intense, um, very, um, di- is it that, did you get the feeling that they only met up during New Year's Eve or did they have a continuous thing throughout? I know that that was like their seasonal thing. I got the feeling that they had like continuous. Okay. I got a feeling that they had continuous relationships, but New Year's Eve was their very special occasion that they'd like okay. book a hotel and yeah, all of that fun stuff. Okay. I think I got that impression too, but I just wanted to be sure. Um it's like they're um it's a tradition that they've made for themselves, which is that's what you do with relationships. So, I mean, for Eula to deny that and for Carla to carry that, it's hard, man. That's it's, it's intense. So, for me, I found the story of Eula, I actually found it a little heartbreaking because I can, like, I know that woman or I know that person because I've seen them in so many people, that kind of having to not just quench your desires but actively actively deny it even while submitting to them and yielding to your desire but it was so very clear that there's this war happening between Eula and she is actively trying to win that war that war between her queerness and her sexuality because when you read it's very obvious that she's She's really sexually attracted to Car- to Carlotta. Um, I think majority of their meetups on New Year's Eve that Eula is the one that typically initiates. I could be misremembering. Carlotta, right. I could be misremembering, but Eula seems to be the one that typically initiates their um, initiates their sex. And 
is also the one that typically desires more or, or I guess becomes a little bit more inhibited and throws caution to the wind when they're having sex. So it's in those moments, it's just very clear that she's, she wants this and she desires this. And this is something that she probably longs for and something that she knows that she, she wants long-term and that she wants on a continuous basis. But then that idea that usually we get implanted from the church, this idea that the only future that is correct or the only future that is normative is the future that you have with a man when you wayfine and with uh, having children with that man. I remember there were several chapters when she, Eula was dating, like there are periods when Eula was dating, but the dating just never did a work out for her. <laughs> the dating thing just never did a work out for her. And uh, I feel like those are one of those things. I don't know if, uh, I don't remember if Disha actually put this in, but I feel like it's one of those things where your body, I am in your heart, know what you want. And so as perfect as somebody is, it just does not work out because I know that's what you want. But yeah, I found this story, I found this particular story to be heartbreaking in that way. And I can agree with you, Ashley, in terms of for Carletta having to carry that burden but I don't feel like Carletta felt as burdened I don't know uh I feel like Carletta I don't think I agree with that more... I think she felt really burdened oh wait felt as burdened with what carrying or trying to search for the the man as her partner no uh carrying the secret of their affair was that what you meant um, like what did you what did you mean? I I think what I meant the burden of uh, Eula always rejecting their relationship, and uh, her having to I guess rationalize it in her head because she she recognizes that this person does desire her, but uh, just in a very secretive way. And I think that's a that's a different burden to carry. Hmm. I, I didn't I'm get that from Carolita at all. I got you didn't. To, and it's not to say no, it's not to say that I don't think that Carolita was annoyed by Eula's insistence on a husband and insistence that the kind of sex that they have isn't real sex, real enough for her to lose her quote unquote virginity. I do, I do feel like there was annoyance on Carletta's part, but I don't think she, I don't think, I don't know if she was as bothered that they weren't in a relationship. I think she was annoyed that Carolette, that Eula denies what they experience what they share i think she's annoyed by that in particular but i don't know if she's necessarily annoyed that uh, they're not having a relationship i don't know carl carletta just seemed like somebody who she's enjoying the sex she's having and she wants what she wants from Eula is for Eula to recognize that she this thing that we're doing is a real thing it's not a 
play play thing or a fantasy thing it's a real thing that we're engaging with and i think that's the that's the meat of her alliance i don't know i don't get that i think she's more than just annoyed yeah i think she's annoyed and she's frustrated but i also think she's hurt by Eula always denying her and denying their relationship. I mean, I feel like even even the fact that they meet up in this hotel room, like, I don't remember if it's one state over or one town over or whatever it is, and they really, both of them seem to really want to go to Times Square to watch the ball drop in person, but they can't even do that because it's a secret. Their relationship is a secret. You go to Times Square and welcome the new year, with a new case with Yulovo, and in Yulo's eyes, Yulovo is a man, and for them to not be able to do that is, I mean, she's, feel like Kyle is okay with, uh, I don't know if she's okay with it, I think she's made herself be okay with the fact that this is where their relationship will be, but uh, I feel like if the, if there was a book based on this relationship, I would like to think that at the end of it, Carlotta will know her worth and uh, leave Eula and like just put behind these things because she wants to be with somebody who won't deny her. Um, so I don't know. I, I just kind of felt like it. the experiences of them doing that, although it became this tradition and it became this, this thing that they both shared, there was uh, a longing for, from both of them for it to be more um or more than what it is and I think for Eula maybe she was longing for it to be with someone else and uh, for Carletta she was longing for it to be with Eula but to be more than in this the space of a hotel room I'm curious as I'm curious about how you think this story would have been told differently if it was from the perspective of Eula. Hmm. Great question. Um I think I think Eula really does love Carletto. I do. But she doesn't feel like she can embrace that because of what it means to be a Christian woman. And uh, I think uh, her love for God trumps her love for Carlito. Uh, or not her love, but her like reverence and respect for God trumps her love for Carlito. And so um, she would prioritize her religion unfortunately. But I think even if she was supposed to get with a man and on the surface, she's happy and everything is great. And she has the children and the husband and the dog and the white picket fence. There will still be some sort of void inside her that she will manage always because she just seems like the type of person who can just manage stuff. I don't know. They were talking about her. I mean, they both bonded because they were, I think, the only black girls in their class. And there were Carlito, sorry, Eula was really smart. And uh, I don't know, they just had like a very, 
mm, the connection that they had was it's very foundational and it feels almost soulmate. I feel like I've since I've been really thinking about what a soulmate means and how we classify it as people and how it tends to be solely um limited to romantic relationships i'm ex- i'm in the middle of exploring what that means but i feel like carlito and uh, yulo could be soulmates but uh, in our patriarchal um world we the, the we for her yulo it just couldn't be that way because carlito is a woman unfortunately but that's that's my assumption um i don't know maybe it could be a little i I like a, a happier ending but from what i was reading that's that's what i got from it i'd be very curious in this world if eula does end up finding the husband that she expects god to just provide if she'd still continue the relationship with carletta that's something i'm curious about how she would feel about what they do because she's obviously not really seeing it as actual quote-unquote actual quote-unquote sex and stuff so i'm thinking that if it was written from eula's perspective it would be one that's kind of riddled with a lot of anxiety i'm remembering chinelo aparanta's under the udala trees the story for the story in that book is of this woman who is obviously a lesbian living in Nigeria and the experiences she had when she was a teenager, if I remember correctly, or in her early adolescent years, adult years, I should say, and how, I guess, having that knowledge that it's not right, quote unquote, for her to be gay, she ends up marrying a man and having two children and the as much as she ended up loving her partner and loving her children there was always this grief i would say this grief that the main character experiences throughout her life this kind of longing and yearning and i don't remember if she ever ended her marriage or left her marriage i don't think she did but i think for a eula and if it was written from eula's perspective a writer could make it a happy ending where Eula comes out and affirms herself and feels good about herself. But from what we know from Eula in this particular story, it feels like the kind of story that would end with Eula just existing in this perpetual kind of agony. Because being in the church in that way, having this fear slash reverence for God and for the word of God and what the ideals of the church is, the one of the primary tenets of being a churchgoer Christian is that you kill flesh, aka you deny your fleshly desires, you deny your worldly desires in service of God and in service of what God desires of you. So if this, if, if, the characterization of Eula here is to remain true, then I feel like that's how her story would end. She might still find different moments to sneak off with Carlotta, Carletta, 
and this is kind of reminding me of Patsy too. Wasn't um, Patsy's friend married, but she would still sneak into Patsy's room and feel up, feel up. <laughs> so I feel like it would end up being a story similar to that where she would find moments to seek out that sort of pleasure. But at the end of the day, she she understands what her what her purpose as a Christian woman is. And so she would continuously deny as much as she can and as best as she can deny herself in service of that. I think that's kind of the perfect good way to talk about not Daniel in terms of seeking out your desires. Um, but in not Daniel, the main character does not deny herself any of these pleasures. <laughs> I don't know if you want to do the summary for not Daniel. This one is where her, the main character's mom is in the hospital, right? Or a hospice, I think it is. Yeah, it's a hospice. Mm-hmm. So we have we meet this woman who is first of all, I think the first page the first page of that is her meeting up with a guy to fuck in the parking lot. With Magnum XL condoms. And I'm like, that is very specific. <laughs> felt like an ad. I was like, whoa, okay. Like that's literally I'm looking at the book now. It's a second sentence. I held a box of condoms on my yeah. excels. I was like, okay, I guess we needed to know that. I guess that makes you feel a bit more justified. We needed to know. We needed to know. So in this story, we meet uh, this woman and not Daniel. He's called not Daniel because she thought he looked like or was somebody she knew whose name is Daniel. But throughout the story, we meet this woman and this man who they met each other at a hospice. Both of their mothers are, um, are they dying from cancer or they have cancer and are yeah, they both going have cancer. Treatment. Right. So they're going through, they're going through treatment at the hospice. Uh, not Daniel is married with kids, but uh, in this story, what we recognize is two people who are grieving and finding their own ways of grieving the possible death of their their mothers, the declining health of their mothers, and also everything that comes with having to take care of someone who is critically ill. All the, the energy that you have to put in to be there for them, all the money that goes into financing their care. And so we find the two of them at a place where they're unsure of how to express that grief, how to express that. I wouldn't know. They're not unsure. They're very sure because they're in a book. So that's basically that. And I found this story, uh, It, I think it's the kind of story that's very easy to, where it's very easy to be judgmental. It's very easy to go, but girl, when the inadequate, and there's even a part where 
Daniel or her, they're worried that in the middle of them having sex, the phone call will come, that phone call will come where they tell them that, you know, your your family member has died. Oh no, she's the one who's worried about it. Not Daniel said, if he thinks about that, it, it, like he can't concentrate. Okay. <laughs> like it's, it's one or the other. Family <laughs> having sex or, or I'm in this place. So like for him, it's just straight up an escape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. He just can't think of anything else around like this is what i need this is what we're going to do so it's very easy to be very judgmental towards these people i'm not telling anybody not to be judgmental i'm just saying it's very easy but uh, on the other hand you kind of understand you understand especially if you've experienced this kind of grief you kind of understand that need to have that moment of escape especially when you're the primary caregiver of the person who's critically ill, um, as well as the person who is making all of the decisions, making all of the financial decisions, um, the decisions about their health and how to approach it. I was going to say, yeah, I totally agree with you, um, Christina, where, you know, this is a type, or Jerry, and I remember who said it, this is a type of story that you can get a little bit judgy as a reader because I feel like I was edging on that but at the same time I totally get it you know there's grief and then there's the stress of having to deal with all of this and the the one thing that stress needs is to be released and you know a good release is a nice cookie in a hospital um, car park like I totally get it um so <laughs> yeah it was a fun story it was quite short too i remember reading it and thinking holy crap it's finished what the heck i feel like i wanted it to get steamy and steamy but that's literally it like it's the moment it was just that moment of or actually that's what i interpreted it as do you get the feeling that they were meeting each other several times while they're their receptive mothers were in the hospital or was it just that one incident or not instant? no it was several times like it was several times because if you're like sitting waiting and yeah, it was had a routine. routine yeah oh okay because she was like checking her phone it was like do this in between these things like yeah it was a regular thing okay yeah, um, well, I guess I'm a little bit more judgy now that I know that it's a regular thing, but I also get it, like, it's stressful. Like, really? Yeah, yeah, especially not Daniel, because man have a whole ass family back at home, and I mean, he's just, he's just living his life. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I get it, but I, I feel like I can't. And said, I can either deliver the goods or think about my mama dying or not. I guess that includes all of his family and everything. <laughs> can't do both. <laughs> so, yeah. You either want me to be a loving husband or you want me to be an adulterer who is trying to figure out how he feels about his mom dying. You can't have all of them. Or well, you can't have both. I think what I really enjoyed or what what the story revealed to me is and I think the book does this multiple times because there are multiple stories that approach grief from a completely different perspective one that you don't necessarily see and this one 
is one where people dealing with a very slow grief, grieving someone who hasn't died as yet, how they handle it is not necessarily the most, I guess, socially acceptable way of doing it. But this story revealed to me that I have become a lot less judgmental over the years because honestly, I did not care much about the morality of it. I I appreciated that an author decided to write something that is just this messy because grief in itself is very messy. It's not just you sit down and you cry or, you know, you, you do all the things you're supposed to do as a good child, quote unquote, or in not Daniel's case, a good husband. It's, it's the mess of coping with grief and I appreciated it. I think it was a really well short story. And actually, stylistically, I, I I just looked back at it. It's like three, four pages long. So it's very, very short. And I guess it also shows just the intensity because it does pack a whole lot into those four pages. And you're able to imagine a lot about their lives and what they've been doing and how they got to this point of just having an affair in the car park of a hospice as their mom slowly die of cancer. Uh, But yeah, no judgment here from me. The morality of it is very sketch, but grief is messy. And I appreciate that the writer decided to just second story. We're dealing with the mess of grief and this is how we're doing it. The other story as well is another one of grief and that's Dear Sister. I don't know if you finished that one, Ashley. Yeah, I did. I love that one. It was, oh, that was, it was hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> you know what it kind of reminded me of? Um, it kind of gave me a girl woman other vibe. Um, for some reason, I don't know. Um, Latisha's story. I see that. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't remember who else's story right now, but it it was giving me girl woman other for sure. I can see that. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed Dear Sister a whole lot. First of all, I think writing letters in literature, just the form of presenting a little makes a story a hundred times more intimate. Um, it's one of my favorite formats for literary works. So I was really excited to see that story come up. Close second is a diary entry, which is also presented in this. And at this point, when I started, I was like halfway through Dear Sister, I was like, yes, this is an amazing writer. And we're going to pick this for book club because the stories all had very distinct voices. They're all very different settings. They're different people. And I thought that was just a very powerful way to just hit off a debut book. So they're in the middle of Dear Sisters, where I was like, yes, we are definitely reading this for book club. In this story, I... First of all, I was actually very surprised at the shift in the method that Disha used to tell the story because I really wasn't expecting it to be like a, expecting it to be a letter being written. Uh, and this story, as Jerrine mentioned, is another one about dealing with grief and another way of dealing with grief where the person who died you don't you don't have a kind of connection to them you don't have 
any sort of intimacy with them, but they're still somebody who's very close to you. So this story is narrated through a letter by Jackie. Jackie is one of five sisters, and they're writing this letter to uh, a sister that they didn't grow up with, a sister that they, I don't think they know. I think they might have, I think they met this sister years ago when they were younger, if I remember correctly. And so Jackie is writing this letter to this outside sister. Oh, it's Nichelle that's writing this story. My bad. Right. Nichelle is writing the story, writing the letter to Jackie. So Nichelle is writing this letter to tell Jackie that their father has died. And then through this letter, she is basically giving them giving her a summary of her life and their lives and what their lives has what their lives have been like without the presence of the one thing that they share in common which is their father and through this we get this uh, i don't know this smattering of the the varying sisterhoods the varying relationships that they have with each other, the lives that they've had to live and weave together with this father who is constantly in and out of their lives, who is someone who they can't depend on, someone who's extremely inconsistent. And we see the many ways in which they're grieving. I don't know if some of them are actually grieving. This father and their the feelings that they have towards this father and I feel like this other one story where I did actually judgmental because we never understand that sister day. I think her name is Renee. We never didn't understand this kind of hope that she still held for this father who never showed up in her life at all. Never, never, ever. Even when he promised, never showed up. But at, for some strange reason after his death, she was mourning well not strange i'm guessing she's mourning the possibility that died with him dying so someone can not, can be alive and not be consistent with you but you can still hope that they change their mind and hope that they that you can cultivate a relationship with them and so i'm assuming that she's grieving that she's grieving the possibility of a relationship between her and her father but jesus is and then the policing of the other sister's uh, grief, because there was one sister, I don't remember her name, who was not having it, who never gave a shit. And she never did give a shit. And she never planned to give a shit. And Renee ended up policing that grief. I mean, I said, girl, I don't understand how you cannot fathom that this father that I did not have a relationship with is someone who I might not care about in death as much as I did not care about him in life. Yeah, it was a chaotic story, I feel like, because first of all, the different personalities from the various sisters were, it was all over the place, um, in a good way, because it really set the tone for, you know, you have that... Um, energetic holiday home um all of them weren't in the same space because they're now adults and they came back into a space that they all used to frequent as children and the tensions are high because uh, you know this is somebody that 
you're grieving. Um, it, but in, in different ways. Um, Renee in particular, I think, she, boy, when Michelle, the, the, the narrator, was talking about that, that flashback from when she was 10 and uh, the father had promised to come to church and he never showed up and every second she was turning around and then they had like a father's altar call. I mean, those type of things are really heartbreaking and traumatic for a child and it's hard for, for I guess for her, she was just really trying to always seek the approval from this person and she just never got it and it's really unfortunate and sad um but uh, uh yeah um i what i liked about it is that it showed the different ways that people are able to manage their big emotions so there were four sisters and uh, michelle she at a she got to a point where she just stopped expecting the father to show up in a way that she wanted him to. Renee, unfortunately, unfortunately, didn't get to that point. She was always hopeful and optimistic. Pashito was kind of resentful about the father and the, the type of relationship or lack thereof that they had. And Kimbo, the oldest, she had a very apathetic um, um behavior or emotion towards him. I think that in order for her to um in order for her to guard herself and her emotions, she just kind of shut down and said, Well, I'm gonna I think she called him Stet or Wallace or whatever. Not not that. So she was going to take away any sort of uh, emotional connection and have a very neutral, have a very like very formal relationship with him. And it just it shows that the, the different ways that children can guard themselves from a parent that is absent in their life. Um, what I really liked, though, I should have highlighted it, but when I was reading it at the time, I didn't have a highlighter or a pen. Um, it's because this is something that is uh, an experience uh, in many different uh, families, but in particular, Black families where we have... I don't know if it's higher levels, but high levels of father absenteeism. Um, the 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 writer um, of the letter, Nichelle, was asking Jackie, you know, is it which one is worse to have the the disappointment of not having a father around for your entire life, or having the little disappointment every single way? every single day that he makes like so if he promises to come to church or if he promises to come to um something that you have at school and he just doesn't show up you know which one is worse and I think that's a really great question because yeah you can go through your entire life feeling that certain sort of void because you don't really know who your father or he didn't have a impactful relationship in your life or you have the other side where you definitely know who your father is, but he's not somebody who is dependable. He's not somebody who um, honors his word. He's not somebody who shows up for you in a way that a parent should show up for you. And is it better? Is it good to? Is it is it sufficient to just know who your father is, or is it important that he plays an active role in your life? I thought that was a really great question that. Um, Disha 
asked us the readers to sit down and ponder um, because I don't have the I don't have the answer. I mean, and, and I don't have that experience either. I have a father who has played an important and impactful role in my life and has been there in moments that I need him. And uh, so I this is not my um is not my space to ask that question or I don't know if it's my space. Maybe that's not the right phrasing I'm trying to use, but. I can't really relate to the emotions of it, but it really did uh, allow me to think about so many of my friends or people that I know who don't necessarily have that active paternal figure in their life and how they're able to navigate life. So some people may have um, an uncle because all of them, while the uncle wasn't as close or as... um, I mean, he didn't play the father role. He did assume somewhat of a role when uh, Nichelle had that really awkward and uncomfortable moment with one of her father's friends at his graveside, actually. The first thing she thought was to call her uncle's name out loud. So there was still like a, a man in her life who she was able to rely on and call on for in the event that she had uh yeah, this story got me thinking about about how you grieve people that aren't necessarily active in your life or necessarily great upstanding members of a community. And there are the more obvious ways where the pastor just didn't have anything good to say, so they just did a general preaching thing about, oh, you should become a Christian and turn over your soul because there's nothing much to say about the person themselves. But also, what does that mean for a family to connect? And the person who wrote the story, I think she did a very good job of framing the conversation where it's less so that this person has died, but more so of this person who probably wasn't very good in any of their lives, um, while Renee may disagree, that this person connected um, these sisters, um, this person connected this family. And while they may not be grieving that person's positive impact in their lives, they're still supporting each other as a family as they deal with the process of grief and the whole process of having a funeral and expenses and reaching out to family. And I thought that was a really, again, another another unique way of looking at grief. So for this story to come right after, not Daniel, I appreciated it. And stylistically, I also love, and Disha does this throughout the book, is she has men in the stories. However, these men are not the center of the stories. Even though this story, Dear Sister, is very much about a father who is absent and their conversations about him. He's still not the center of the story. The center of the story is still about the sisters and their personalities and their relationships with each other. And how even though a lot of them don't see eye to eye, they still very much stick up for each other. Something as simple as you're not wearing that dress into the church. Here's a blazer you can put over it. Or, yo, that person is hitting on you. Let's, what did they do? Add pepper to the, to the person drink and have them choking? So I thought that was just really beautiful for Disha to be able to say, 
yes, it is. And and just as a writer, I think stylistically, that's brilliant for you to be able to have mm -hmm. a man be the center of the pivot of this story. But the story is not about him. The story is about the sisters. And that in itself is how the letter is beautifully framed as, yeah, this guy was not necessarily a great guy. You weren't missing out on much. I don't know if you want to reach out to us, but reach out to us if you want to, because these are going to be an amazing set of sisters who will have your back. Yeah, it was it was really great to see the the relationship um, as you mentioned with these sisters. It might not have been an ideal relationship with everyone, but it was so very clear that there was still a lot of care and a lot of love there and that they also want to extend that to this estranged sister. Well, everybody except maybe Rene. <laughs> they want to extend this love to the sister and i if i remember correctly there was a there's a moment in the book where michelle is almost questioning or well wants to find out from jackie what her life was like without this father almost kind of wondering if she felt the same kind of emptiness that they feel but i think also as a way of it's like shared shared pain and shared shared grief of having that absent father and kind of saying that even though there was this absence from our dad, there's still a kind of love that you can receive from us that's also fulfilling or that can can be as or that can fill that gap that was left by by the father. And I was kind of moving to the next story, even though I'm not sure if we're finished, to Peach Cobbler. I'm now thinking that, or well, now thinking about how Disha weaves and puts these stories together because Peach Cobbler is also a story about our relationship with our parents. And it's also a kind of grieving in my head uh, for Peach Cobbler. We... We get this story of this uh, this mother daughter relationship where there's this daughter who is so desperately in need of intimacy and connection with her mother, but feeling like she's being denied that kind of intimacy. But on the other hand, the mother believing, or well, in my opinion, sort of believing that that kind of intimacy and connection isn't necessary because I'm doing what I need to do for you as a mother. I am providing for you and I am teaching you the hard and the harsh lessons of what it what it means to be a girl and what it then transitions to be, transitions to be a woman. And this story is so named because the mother of the protagonist in this story bakes a peach cobbler every Monday on her day off for her man. And her man just happens to be <laughs> the pastor of the church that she attends. And of course, the pastor married uh, of Pitney. But uh, they, 
the thing about that is that this girl saw this peach cobbler as a kind of symbolism of what it means to be loved by her mother because every every monday without fail with as much attention to detail as possible this mother gets up to bake this peach cobbler and we see we get this imagery of the protagonist i can't remember her name but this protagonist watching her mother as she makes this peach cobbler just being very just very intently watching her mother and wanting so badly to one be a part of the process of baking this peach cobbler but also wanting what comes with peach cobbler being made wanting that love wanting that uh, that sort of shared intimacy that the mother that the mother cultivates with the pasta. Super messy. Um, yeah, it was it and and the grieving bit that I'm talking about is just kind of this grief of knowing this sort of deep-seated knowing or the knowing that she came to realize, she being the girl in the story, that she'll never get that. She'll never get that connection that she desires, that uh, this person that I so want to be close to, that I so want to connect to, that I want to see me, I will not get what I desire from them. I'm sort of grieving that. And there's this scene where the pastor doesn't show up one Monday and the mother discards the entire peach cobbler and the daughter getting up in the middle of the night and going into the trash can the trash can to eat and taste the peach cobbler because she's never had the opportunity to taste it and i found that scene so heartbreaking just really heartbreaking because i felt like that was the the i don't know how you describe it but just the again that desperation and that need that deep-seated need to to have some sort of connection with her mother to go that far to going into the very dirty, awful trash and trying to get a taste of that peach cobbler. Can I tell you that's the part of the story that upset me the most? As, as someone who bakes, <laughs> and you, like whenever I bake something, I want everyone that I love or even just like to have some. And the fact that the mother made something, yes, you made it for a specific person and whatever, and this person just didn't show up that day, you wouldn't even give your daughter? That made not me so even, upset. Not um, even for me to taste the butter, even though it's not recommended right? that you taste butter, but jeez. It, it upset me so much. And that made me very interested in understanding a lot of where the mother was coming from. And the more I was thinking about the mom and the reasoning behind it, it reminded me of Here Comes the Sun with Dolores. And the more the mother spoke, the more Dolores came to mind where it was, she didn't want her daughter to be exposed to really, well, nice things. She didn't want her daughter to feel like things are just going to be handed to her because she knew what the world would be like for her daughter. And her daughter, I hope I'm not mixing up the story. Her daughter was dark skinned, whereas the mother was lighter skinned. Am I mixing up the stories? 
I think the daughter was, I know the daughter was dark. I hope I'm not getting this mixed up. But there was this idea, regardless of the mother's um, color, there was this idea that, which reminded me of Here Comes the Sun, was that you need to humble a dark-skinned girl from early. You need to have her, you need to check her self-esteem. You have to have her expect so little, have her exposed to the worst of conditions. But she shouldn't have nice things because as she gets older, these things won't be available to her. So as a mother, your idea of protecting your dark-skinned daughter is just to not have her exposed to nice things or not have her think that this thing is attainable so that it saves her of heartbreak and it's such a strange idea of protection and you saw it with Dolores and here comes the son who's like oh like the her view of just dark-skinned people is like terrible I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact quote that you had if I find it I'll say it but it reminded me of that. And that theme comes up a lot in books where you have dark-skinned teenage girls being told that they don't, they shouldn't have nice things. They should not be exposed to nice things. And mothers especially treating them poorly so that they don't want these things as they get older. Or they see it as something that other people have and you can't have. Yeah, I actually just found that quote where the mom said where the daughter comes home and tells her mother that she's been invited i think to a party yeah to a birthday party and the mom flat out said no yanago the pastors they're trying to convince the mom to let her go to the party and the mom says this they can raise their child however they see fit but i'm not going to raise mine to go through life expecting it to be sweet when for her it ain't going to be. The sooner she learns to accept what is and what ain't, the better. She gets a taste of that sweetness. She's going to want it so bad she'll grow up and settle for crumbs of it. And I find that quote a bit just so deeply sad. And it also, outside of it, it, it reinforcing the kind of protection that she feels is necessary for her daughter it also feels very clear that this is something that either she had to learn the hard way or something that she wished she learned when she was young yeah i found a quote from here comes the sun that breaks my heart it's dolores talking about her daughter and saying nobody love a black girl not even herself and that is what dolores says to justify the way that she treats her daughters um and it's something that I think is just so real. And I appreciate Disha, Nicole Dennis-Ben, and also these other writers who explore these, not even just complicated, but really messed up mother-daughter relationships, especially amongst Black women, dark-skinned women, and how we inflict pain and emotional emotional damage on each other in the name of protecting them when really a lot of the protection that they need is from you as their model and what that does to their self-esteem yeah and if you read here comes the sun which you should i think it's mandatory reading for everyone who claims to have a grasp on contemporary caribbean fiction 
you'll know that Thandie starts bleaching and it, it really gets to her head in terms of the way that she looks and the way that she presents in the world. Uh, yeah, but Peach Clablo, I know we're making it sound a bit harsh, but it, there, there are lots of heartbreaking things in it. But I do find the mother to be a bit manipulative beyond that, sending her to go work for the pastor. Wife, yes, just so that she, she can, can spy fast. and hear what the place looked like and what and all of that. It gets really messy, and I think the main character really starts to come into her own as a person and get agency, even though a lot of that is birthed out of anger and birthed out of her feeling rejected by her mother. But yeah, 10 out of 10. Definitely one of those stories that will stand out to you. And I love, again, stylistically how Disha writes. I, I, the, the first line is iconic. I'm going to read it, if you'll let me. Um, My mother's peach cobbler was so good. It made God himself cheat on his wife. Huh. Brilliant. And when you realize who God is, mm-hmm. ah, brilliant. Such a fantastic writing. That was very unexpected. I think overall she has great first lines. Um, the next story has another great first line: Snowfall. I feel I, I said this in book club where I feel like Snowfall kind of was a bit mellow compared to Peach Cobbler, and at first I didn't like it, but the more we talked about it in book club, I was like, oh, I, I do like this story. So the first line for Snowfall is, Black women aren't meant to shovel snow. If you've ever experienced snow, yeah, no. no. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Black women are definitely not meant to shovel snow. Ever. Ever. I loved Snowfall and I loved How to Love a Physicist, which is the follow-up yeah, which is a story that follows Snowfall. I think it's so interesting uh, how these two stories, which are, which I think are very soft, and as you mentioned, kind of mellow, this sort of soft kind of love. I felt like a hug. Yes, smack dab between the stories that precede them and the stories that succeed them because those stories were hard as hell. <laughs> But you had these two very soft kind of, I don't know, just loving and the kind of stories that make you think this is the kind of love that I want and this is the kind of love that I desire. So in Snowfall, we have these two women who, through, now that I remember, Snowfall was also something that kind of dealt with mother-daughter relationships where we see one woman who comes out and whose mother I'm trying to remember if the mother denies it or if the mother is the, is one that wants to pray the gay away I think it's the latter I think this yeah mother, she's very bitter about it so there's they're estranged because the mother does not accept that her daughter is queer and that more than just being queer she's now living with a woman living biblically with a woman 
her mother is a very Christian lady, so that's just not something that she's cool with. But we see the estrangement of that relationship, but we also see that even in the midst of that estrangement, that there is desire for for reconciliation, that both of them wished that things could be different, that they could have a have a deeper relationship because they did before uh before the protagonist decided to move away they had a good relationship they had one where they they knew each other each other's everything each other's insides and out and their favorite food and i remember i think when the protagonist was younger she she was coming home from her girlfriend who she told her mother is her friend um, with fried chicken and she mentioned the hot sauce etc and so that I think that little thing that Disha put in is to kind of let us know that these two women were more than just mother and daughter they cared for each other in a very deep and intimate way beyond just obligatory love and obligatory care they had a thing right because it was just them and so it makes that uh, that after where the daughter would have come out and the estrangement of the relationship happens, it makes that after feel a little bit more deep for me because, again, you know that there's a desire. And we see it throughout the book where uh, there's a scene where the... I really need to get these names right. <laughs> There's a scene where the protagonist is coming out of their car and she dropped on the ground because there is ice on the road. <laughs> so she dropped on the ground and she says that the first person that she wanted to contact at that moment was her mother because she was one, she was in a lot of pain and then she was extremely annoyed by the snow as well. And so it was one of those just extremely miserable moments where all you want is to be wrapped up, hugged, and for somebody to tell you that it's okay and that you're going to be okay. And she wanted that person to be her mom, but because of that soured relationship, she just could not do that. I really enjoyed the story. And Lily, who is the one who fell, and Rhonda is her girlfriend, one of the things that the story made me think a lot about is the whole idea of home, not just being a place, but also a person, but also how a lot of that idea of making a home in someone can feel a bit stifling. And I know that happens a lot in queer relationships where because of the rejection that many queer people can feel from their family, from some of their quote-unquote friends, um, from society, it's very easy to find home in that person that you are partnered with, and that in itself can feel a bit stifling, because I I think it's great to, obviously, I think it's fantastic for you to feel at home with someone, but you need community, and hopefully, in an ideal world, that community comes from a variety of places. So home doesn't come from just one person. It can come from a whole group of different people. So that was one of the things that kept going through my mind as I read this story. And I love that as we got closer to the end, the idea of home expanded a bit. 
Yeah, because if I remember correctly, or at least there was one point where Rhonda had said to her that it's okay that you miss her. It's okay that you want to call and reach out to your mother. Like, it's okay if that's something that you need and something that you desire. And I definitely agree with you in terms of the idea of home and especially when you're queer and that it can feel like such a it can become a really heavy weight for the other person in that relationship to carry and also too wide of a gap for them to fill and so it's really critical and important to be mindful of that and to endeavor your very best to cultivate your community and your space outside of your partner slash partners because them one can carry everything. And I really love the I really love how they loved each other, Rhonda and Lily. I'm remembering that ending scene. I think it's closer to the end where uh run i'm trying to remember what the conflict was maybe during after i'm finished you can step in with that but some conflict had happened and uh or lily had a bad day one of those things and Rhonda went out and got her her favorite meal and brought it home and played I think one of her favorite songs and they just danced the night away and I thought that was just such a beautiful example of loving and caring actively and intentionally for someone and really just I don't know it was just so adorable and I was just like yes I would want this story in full I really would it is so sweet i i wish this is i I think all of these stories i know that they have been optioned for i I don't remember if it's supposed to be short i remember but it's supposed to be coming to screen at some point this is one of the stories i would love to have on screen it was really really sweet um the other story that was really sweet is how to love a physicist and this story had me screaming and laughing because I have been that main character <laughs> where it's like, oh, I am not ready for this relationship. I am going to just ghost you for a while, maybe block you and then just like unblock you at some point and then randomly show up three, three years later and go, hey, how are you? And then have that person still be like really sweet and everything. <laughs> and I was like, Listen, oh, I was shook. Is this what adults like? Adult relationships are like. And, we're like oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we had like this long conversation about it, and I was like, yeah, I just needed time to actually work on myself. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. So I was really this is who I am now this is the stuff I've learned I don't know if you're actually still in love with the person that I am now and got to know me now so yeah totally related to the mess in the story I was just like I I know people talk a lot about reading stories and seeing themselves I feel like I always see other people that I know 
this was the first time I read a story and I was like, holy shit, I've done this. <laughs> like, like I have been this messy person before and I did not expect to see that aspect of my life ever written in a book so big up Disha for that or not it, it was so embarrassing to read and I was just laughing my ass off the woman fully fully just stopped returning the man's text <laughs> it was hilarious um but what was even more unexpected i think is that part you mentioned about the the man kind of saying no that's okay i figured that i figured that you not telling me to stop messaging you means that you're okay with me sending you these messages like this man is sending her you know like when you and somebody have been together for a while or even if even if you're a friend and you send them very random things that are happening in your day or just random thoughts that pop in your head yes. sort of a message are and like <laughs> she doesn't respond because <laughs> you're like oh she is not responding and he's just like well i guess you had things to do or there's a reason why you didn't reach out and so that's perfectly fine and it's such a surprising way, surprising in that uh, I don't know how many people would be okay with how a story like this unfolds, but uh, Disha does the, the the unexpected and gives us a, a relationship or a situation where this other person, because they know their desire, one, and I don't think that they... The guy in his messaging, I don't think that it was creepy. You know, there are some people who can message you continuously, like random people on Instagram or Facebook who will send you messages in your DM constantly and you're not responding and you're like, why are you doing this? It wasn't that kind of thing. Uh, or it didn't feel like that kind of thing reading it. And having this character be compassionate towards, uh, towards her and her terror because it really was terror as we see in the book um she goes to therapy to figure it out she's just really terrified of that kind of intimacy but we see where she works on herself and then she reaches out and it ends up just being a really a really beautiful blossoming story between these two people that i thought was just very adorable because it's so clear that this guy is a nerd and we love nerds we love them i'm remembering a scene where I think she asks him if he, Jesus. I remember there's a scene where she asks him if he believes in fate and he was like, no. And she was so heartbroken hearing that, but then he yeah, does she this. Was ready for like, this. This is where the fairy tale ends. Exactly. <laughs> but then he does this thing of being a very, adorable nerd and explains this entire astronomy phenomenon i think and uh, wait i'm gonna find it and read. all right well you look christina um i know i said that i stopped reading just as about as about to start peach cobbler um but i really enjoyed you guys um describing the different stories in the book and i'm really excited to to finish up what I do want to say, though, because I think, uh, at least from the the stories that I've read so far, I think the author does a really good job of uh, writing Black stories 
and a black woman thriving in spite of. And I think that's a really, I think that's how I've been looking at blackness a lot. Because we have a lot of imagery in the media that is super negative and people just have a lot to say about black people and it's usually not great. Um, but when we do amazing things, they're the first people to jump on the bandwagon and say, oh yeah, this is amazing. How could you do this? Blah, blah, blah. And I just like to share stories and read about stories of black people doing the damn thing in spite of. And it's in spite of all of the challenges, in spite of all of the, the rejections that we get in our own community and from other people, um, the relationships that we have to navigate, the tough ones, the intimate ones, everything. I just, it's nice to know that Black people continuously come out on the other side. Better people, better friends, better partners, better parental figures because of it. Um, so that's my little takeaway from it. But I, I don't, I really do like uh, this. I, I like this book so far, and uh, um, I'm really excited to finish up. I think I might maybe another two days, and I'll be able to finish it up. But this was a great discussion, and I'm really excited to to especially read Peach Cobbler for some reason. <laughs> you guys described it really well. Yeah, I think the thing, I mean, besides the very strange parallel of how this story kind of went in terms of my own life, the thing that I really, really appreciated about this story, again, Disha has a man in this in this story. Uh, unlike the others, he's like really, really sweet and super kind and the type of person that restores faith in humanity but he's not the center of the story the story is about a protagonist who discovers herself she works on herself she goes to a therapist she even though she has been partnered i think throughout middle school high school college and even in her professional life she still hasn't really discovered what what excites her about sex all these desires and all of these things it's just always been reactive to whatever her partner at the time wants and when this physicist comes into her life and she realizes oh no I am not ready for this and she decides to take the time to actually work on herself and the story stops being like he's he's like garnish in this story and the actual substance of the story is her working on herself figuring out what it is that she desires figuring out what her heart wants what is it that she wants as a person I think the impression I get is that she's someone who's in her 30s I don't know if you guys got that impression so probably someone in like their mid 30s and for her to come into her own I think was just really beautiful, regardless of how the story would have ended romantically for her and the physicist. I I loved that journey that she went on. So you know, she had messaged the physicist and he's like, yeah, no, I'm gone. I, I, I would have been fine with that because we got to have that whole experience of her discovering herself. But the physicist, she, they, they fall in love. It's a really, really cute romance story and I was just screaming as I read it because I was like oh my god this is my life 
Yeah. Not during actually being a messy person. I don't think I'm messy. I worked yeah. on myself. It took time <laughs> to be happy and not like super depressed all the time. And and escaping a lot and figuring out what I wanted. Yeah. We love that. The girls are healing. They are healing and becoming the their best selves. And, not and just... that's exactly what happens. In yeah. This. And she, it's, it's, it's lovely to see that you, even if it's just a fictional character, um, there are people who are willing to allow you to go on that, that journey of healing. And if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And I, I imagine a lot of people would read this and be like, oh my God, it's so unrealistic. I'm here to tell you that it's not unrealistic. Because there's like a person I know who's done this. And I'm just like, whoa, wild. Anyways, so that story was super cute. And I was just screaming while I read it. How was it for you, Christina? (laughs) I hope your life has not been as messy as mine. I don't think yours has been. No, because I'm unfortunately the type of person who has mostly been in long-term relationships. and very Definitely the longest out of the three of us. Yeah, I'm a long-term relationship kind of girl. Mostly because I love comfort, and once I've found comfort, I'm great. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really it was really beautiful seeing this story, and we we got a glimpse of her experiencing therapy and what therapy meant and looked like for her. And through that, we we get to understand why it is that she stopped returning his messages. It's because she's terrified of love and she feels like she's undeserving of the kindness and the sweetness that is being offered to her. And she needed this, or well, she needed to step away and really needed to come into herself and really unravel all of that fear so that she can take this next step. And again, we see her after after going to therapy for a while, sort of coming back into herself or finding herself again or finding a new version of herself. We see her returning to doing art, something that she really loves and enjoy. And it was when she became her best self that she felt like I guess she started to she started to feel worthy maybe I don't want to use the word worthy because in truth everybody is worthy of love but she started to feel that deserving thing where she didn't have to question whether this person why this person is being nice to her or that niceness or that if that niceness is taken away from her then she'll crumble like she no longer had to do any of that kind of questioning it was a real deep knowing now that yeah I can be loved and I deserve love. And even if I don't get love from someone else, then my entire being is still intact. My idea of myself is still intact and my identity, whatever that is in the moment, is stable enough to not be completely demolished if something goes wrong. And again, as Jerrine had rightfully mentioned, that this... this 
guy, as sweet as he was and as sensitive and caring as he was, he wasn't the important part of the story. And their romance wasn't the important part of the story. Their love story, as much as it is a love story, I think is secondary to the self-love story. I know that sounds very airy-fairy, but it's true. It's her... Yeah, it's that it's her blossoming in a way that feels right and important to her. And I kind of relate to that. I feel like because I start I restarted therapy this year and I've had several sessions already and it's it's been so already it's been so critical and important because I'm finding a way to or well I'm finding my way through so much darkness and I'm finding my way through so much hurt just finding my way really finding my way full stop and so I can absolutely relate to finding your way and doing the work of finding your way so I really thought this was great again I think it was amazing that Disha put these two stories beside each other and sort of gave us this relief having read some harder stories or some stories that can be really heartbreaking. So, yeah, this was great. And I want to read the last line because I just think it's so, it's just so nice. Wait, where is it? Okay. So it says, how do you make love to a physicist with your whole self quivering, lush, unafraid? Like... I want to air this in person so we can snap or beat some pot cover. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to jump on to say that based on what you were describing the story to be, Christina, I feel like it might be triggering. <laughs> Not in like a terrible way, but just in a reading me fulfilled kind of way and I don't know if I'm ready for that but um we'll see we'll see I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it would read you for filth to be honest I wouldn't use filth as the word I it I think it's a gentle kind of nudge a gentle yeah, kind of book is very give, non-judgmental yeah it's kind of like give yourself a chance in a way only if you want to. Like, that's the vibe that I get. Not a bitch, you need to sort out your life immediately. No. It's a gentle little nudge. I actually think you'd really you'd really like it. Okay, I'll take you guys' word for it. I'm gonna I mean I'm gonna finish the book and I'm excited to read all of the the stories, but <laughs> Based on y'all's description of this one, I will tread lightly when I start it. And after having those two really mushy, lovely, beautiful stories, <laughs> Disha drops us into the story of Jail. And Jail's story, I found, I don't know if something's wrong with me, but I found her story so hilarious. Hilarious. I love. That it comes from the grandma's perspective. Like, I think that is what really sells the this, this story. Because if it was from Jail's perspective completely, you probably would have been more angry or frustrated, you know? But the grandmother's little side commentaries, 
perfect. It is like the perfect comedic dose that you needed. Like this grandmother was ready for call exorcism, sprinkle some olive oil on this picnic because she not understand where this picnic come from. So we have, well, Jaren said Jail. I will be pronouncing it Jail. Jail is with her grandmother. Her parents, to her knowledge, died. And so she's staying with her. Is it her grandmother or her? No, yeah, it's her grandmother. Is staying with her grandmother. And the grandmother is not a fan of jail in that she finds her to be rude, disrespectful, etc., etc. But also, the grandmother found jail's diary and starts reading the things that are in Giles' diary and but just a quick note Christina all grandmothers who everyone who's ever lived with their grandmother for an extended period of time your grandmother will find you rude so I don't think it's fair to say that she's not really a fan it's just that Giles was a teenager who lived with her grandmother so of course the grandmother going to say rude you know no manners she not understand you and you know where them pitnia come from nowadays but I think she Liked Jail, but Jail, I'm I'm from pronouncing it wrong, but yeah, she just thinks that the pitney now no manners, and I'm, I think that's just a regular thing that grandparents and their their teenage granddaughters go through. Fair. I also think that the grandmother was also really worried and horrified by the things that she found in Jail's diary. For one. She read about Jael lusting after the pastor's wife, who is a young woman, uh, big breast, big body, and Jael did love that. In fact, Jael only one guy church so that she can see the pastor's wife. And of course, like any Christian grandmother, is terrified and horrified of seeing something like that because this child is an abomination and we need to get this sorted. But... So we, in the story, we're kind of thrown into what can be or can seem convoluted and confusing because we get both perspectives. So both perspectives in that it's almost as if we get excerpts from Giles' diary and then we get the grandmother's commentary following the excerpt that we see. And so through Giles' expert excerpts, we're seeing the... We're seeing her navigating this this portion of her life, which is her discovering feelings for women, her navigating her friendships, her navigating the idea of religion, and navigating them in her own special way too, I must say. But also she is... Would you say she's grieving? Uh, I think one of the things I like about the book generally, but with this story, is that grief doesn't end at all. So yeah, she's still grieving what happened to her daughter and her family because of this 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 man that came into their lives and like the violence that comes from it so they're both grieving for a long time yeah 
Yeah, they are. And trying to hold that grief as best as they possibly can. And we also get to see, we get to see the the trials of girlhood too, because there's a, so Giles' friend, I just got the name Cashel. Her friend Cashel is interested. Let me not even say that. This older man who is in his 30s, actually, I don't want to not say she's not interested in this older man because she is interested in this older man. It's somebody that she finds attractive and that she wants something with and ends up having something with with this this big Asterian man. And we get a lot of commentary from Jyle about what she thinks about this relationship. And her description of this man is the most hilarious thing I've ever come across in a book because she just thinks he's so pathetic and disgusting. <laughs> she's just like, she's so disgusted by him. Like she thinks he's the most pathetic thing she's ever seen in her entire life. She just thinks he's beneath her. She thinks that he is. good. He absolutely is. He is scum. Because these girls are what 15, 16. And this teenagers, is, this man is like what in his, in his mid-30s. And like he 36 going on 40. Inherited his his mom's house and I think car because she died. And this man don't like him not really work nowhere. Him smell disgusting. Him don't have no use on this earth. And I'm looking at these teenage girls and little like Kakashil, she feels special because this man is listening to her or whatever and makes her feel like, you know, she's mature. And honestly, mm-hmm. life tip, if an older man tells you that you're mature for your age, it's just because he's immature for his age. Run, girl. His age is no no actual woman in his age would find him interesting. So what does he do? Praise on little teenage girls. Mm -hmm. Disgusting. And keeps her attention by buying her stuff, buying her clothing. uh, I think perfume spending on her and using his money to keep her to keep her I bet it's not even his money. I bet it's a little money he inherited. To keep her attention but also to get into her panties. And the grandmother is just like I don't know. I, I find it hilarious that she's just reading all of these diary entries, not wanting to interfere because she shouldn't know all of these things and just so horrified. As to what, like this this friend that she thought was like all holy and thou and a really good friend is up to. So that is just so hilarious seeing her switch to be like, this this little girl coming out innocent and stuff in the house, and this is actually what she's up to. I thought the grandmother's commentary just made this whole situation a lot easier to digest as you read it. Because it is a horrible horrible thing that this man is doing to these little girls like the grooming is just ugh. and then it's interesting and kind of funny how in this situation the grandmother is almost grateful for giles queerness because she's mm-hmm. like At least she's not like her fast friend over there and of course we 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 get a bit of victim blaming for 
the young girl we can't live without that and uh, wait give me a sec yeah sorry so we i i just happened upon <laughs> and again Nisha with these first lines I just happened upon um, a part of the story where the first line is, can you suck dicks and still be saved? I was just wondering. <laughs> like, I love, love what? the first line. I was listening to an interview where she said a lot of what, like, and she encourages writers to do this. Like, even if you haven't figured out a story, just to write the most epic first line and just leave it. You don't have to finish the story. You don't have to know how it goes. Just write an epic first line. And then who knows, in a few years, you'll come back to it and finish the story. And you can tell that her first her first lines for every story is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then this grandmother, uh, we also get how this grandmother weaponizes her scriptures and weaponizes her Bible having not been able to, I guess, understand Jael or feeling as if Jael is going in a direction that she doesn't think Jael should go in, she enlists scripture as her way of understanding Jael or, well, misreading and misunderstanding Jael. And Jael just does not care. She does not care. And we see, we kind of get at the end of the chapter why she doesn't, why we have this girl who is seemingly uncaring, who is seemingly without empathy. And it's because of this massive tragedy that she's been carrying around with believing that both of her parents died in a car crash. I think that was, right? That was a story that was told to her. But then at the end of the book, we find, the end of the chapter, we find out that that was not the case. What actually happened was... Wait, what happened? Was it that the father... I know the father was abusive. And uh, did he kill her? Did he kill the mom? Yeah, he killed her and Jael witnessed it. Or I think she saw, like, the end of it. So, which I thought was just really sad. Because when she remembers... Cause she was so young, she doesn't remember all the details. And, of course, she's mm-hmm. getting all of this other information about how her parents died. And what she just remembers was that they were underwater. And her friend was like, oh, no, sweetie, you weren't underwater. You were just crying a lot. And I thought that was just so sad because her memory is so, like, there's just so much trauma. There's so much distorting memory that for her, the whole situation was just that they were underwater because there's just so much tears in her eyes and she could not comprehend what was happening. But yeah. Her dad murdered murdered her mom. Mm-hmm. And the adults in her life kept that from her. And I guess which, they want to protect her. Yeah, I was just about to say that I it's an intentional way of protecting her from reliving that sort of trauma because it's very clear that she buried that very deeply and then having mm-hmm. that story having been told that story it confirmed or well helped her to really suppress that memory and uh, that's a lot for anybody to carry around 
like a lot for anybody to carry around and so as Jorin had mentioned we see this theme of grieving weaving itself through these stories and the different ways that we grieve and what we can grieve too because death isn't the only thing that causes us to mourn and grieve sometimes we're we're mourning the loss of ourselves we're mourning the loss of relationships with people who are still alive and we find different ways to to understand that grieving or to get rid of that grieving or escape that grieving and we see it here with Jael where as she grew up it's as if she her entire being was numb like she was almost unable to feel and experience anything except for when she she saw the pastor's wife there was just this this inability to really connect and i can imagine that she was probably living in a dissociated state all her life not knowing that that was what was happening and then there's a there's a portion of the book where the grandmother is recounting how they named their daughters because it's a family of mostly girls and going the whole through line the, is just women just women. women and going yeah, through how their naming convention mm-hmm. going through that naming convention and how they how it started with the with one mother just opening the Bible and pointing to a name. And that became the tradition and the naming convention. And how interestingly, it was the grandmother that named Jael. It was Jael's grandmother that named her and not her mother. And the grandmother sort of regretting that tradition because had she read the story of Jael before naming the child, she probably would have given her a different kind of name because I think this Jael, the Jael from the Bible, ended up killing someone. Yeah, so like, <laughs> what happened, there's war, Israelites and Canaanites, and this guy who was like, oh, well, there's a prophecy that Sisera will fall at the hands of a woman. And this guy was supposed to go to war and he's like, oh, I'm not going to war until this other woman comes with me. That woman was like friends with Jael. Goes to war, the battle is going terribly and this man decides to run away from the battlefield because he didn't want to die. And he thought he could find refuge hiding with Jael and Jael murders him for running away from the battlefield. And honestly, I get it. I get it. You should die on the field. You can't run away from your soldiers. And, what kind of um, man are you? No, if you're going to be a soldier. After him got dragged, the other people then go to war. You're going to run away from your battlefield? No, so Jael murders him. And then the prophecy comes true. That sister will fall at the hands of a woman. Whatever. But yeah, so I think they're just... Like, the grandmother was just really excited because the tradition was that you... The first woman's name, that would be what someone was named. And it was the first time where you opened a page and it was exactly right there with someone saying, usually they'd have to read through and find the next, the closest name to wherever somebody opened it. So the mother, grandmother was really excited about that. And I loved the, the way that the writer, I don't think I want to spoil this for anyone, <laughs> but I love the way that the writer weaves in that biblical story of Giles. Mm-hmm. 
was just and the way that you know you get some poetic justice in the end of the story yeah it's beautiful 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 yeah I like this story it's one I think it was one of the longer stories in the mm-hmm. book. it was it was and it was very funny to me it was very funny and not gonna lie ended I I appreciated it you know I love the ending. It was something that needed to be done. <laughs> yeah. I think Jael probably gets like a bad rep amongst Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but honestly, if you believe in justice, you 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 get it. You get it. <laughs> you get the story of the, you get the biblical story and you get the short story. Yeah. It's a matter of principle. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, after Jail, we have two final stories from Disha. We have instructions for married Christian men, married Christian husbands. Christian husbands. Mm-hmm. This story was super spicy and it kind of reminded me of Peach Cobbler. Hmm. It felt like something that the, the mother in Peach Cobbler could have possibly written. Or mm-hmm. that she could have used. She could have used. Yeah. Could I use it? Because she, she end up go, f- go have feelings for the man and make her feelings get hurt. Yeah. I feel like but she could this, write this in like her, her later years. But yes, and yes. and also it also made me think of the daughter. Like this could be what the daughter grows up to be mm-hmm. because the lady in this main story, yes. she does have a bakery. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if the stories are connected. I think somebody yes. said that they may have been, but I didn't look into it. I think I probably thought that while I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just this very, very... And I loved it because it was so... It's a great example of creating boundaries for yourself and boundaries for the people that you engage with. She but was do you born- think these boundaries make her free or do you think they create a cage? Like, do you think the, these rules is something she set up to protect herself or protect them? Because I think the tone is very much protecting them. But yeah, I, I got the impression that it was more about protecting them or, and I guess that can also be keeping them away from her because it's, it sounds like something that she's experienced before, maybe not directly, maybe indirectly, but something that she's seen play out time and time again. Because in reading it, while she's very strict, I also think that she, I don't think that it was something that lacked care. I still found it to be something that still had some amount of care, some amount of honesty. I'm not honesty in a way that was... <clears throat> harsh but a gentle kind of honesty that listen I know what your I know what your position means in general and I know what your position means to you but I also know that you're somebody with desires so if it is that you want to exercise this desire and I happen to be the person that you want to engage in that desire with here are some things that you should be mindful of here are some things that you should consider here are some things that you t- you should follow and know that I am doing this for you <laughs> and for your best interest. I only want the best for you. So here's how you get that. So 
I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it's a cage for her because I can remember or vaguely remember actually. Um, uh, a section of her rules where she mentioned something about feelings. Let me see if I can find it and come back. No, it wasn't about feelings. It was a section about sex where she's describing what she likes and what she desires. And there was a lot of tenderness in that portion of it. And this is not me saying that sex in general cannot or is not tender, but I thought it was very interesting that from a person like her, based on what we based on what we can characterize from this section. I think her detailing uh, how important tenderness and softness and gentleness is for her, uh, how she really and truly enjoys that. I think that says something. It says something about what she, how she engages. Mm. Okay. Looking back at it, yes, it is the daughter from Peach Cobbler who's grown up. Yeah. Um, I think the part that I really found... Okay, so we just jumped right into this. The instructions for married Christian husbands is exactly what it sounds like. It's a set of instructions coming from someone who sleeps with married Christian husbands. I don't know if she exclusively does her thing, but she has a set of rules and they need to agree with it before she engages in anything. The section that I found most interesting for me was the section where she speaks about their wives. And she's like, don't speak ill of your wife to me. I'm not here for it. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear how she treat. I'm just not interested in. I don't know your wife, but I know women. And honestly, you are probably the problem in the relationship because she talks about the wife's probably desire sex, but she's not getting it from you or she's just not desiring it from you anymore. And I thought that was really interesting because usually when you hear about cheating or things like that, there seems to always be this gray area around the actual marriage itself. But also the common narrative around it is that the husband that cheats may have felt emasculated or the wife is no longer doing all these sexy things that she usually does but you may actually be part of the issue so I I enjoyed reading that section but also the section about emasculation and how a lot of wives will treat their husbands like children and I think that is something that is super common amongst Christians, where the role that women take on in marriages tends to be of another mother figure. And the Bible encourages husbands to 
what's it cleave something about leave your your mother and cleave to your yeah, wife you or leave, something yeah like you leave your mother you cleave to your wife yeah and and that tends to play out a lot in these heterosexual christian relationships where wives become mothers for men and honestly there's only a very small demographic of people that find that sexy so after a while it just kind of it's not there so i loved this story again i have matured a lot because i did not judge anyone in this <laughs> i did not judge anyone in it i was just i read it and i just took it as what it is this is how these people are and yeah she's interesting as a character and i was just i would love to know more about her outside of her her affairs her her rendezvous yeah she's a cool girl i'm also very curious about if she talks about them needing to go to therapy whether it's marriage counseling or whatever or just go to therapy to talk i'm I'm very curious about what she discusses in therapy mm-hmm. yeah but she's very clear that i am not your therapist so i don't want to hear shit about your life no, yeah thank you go deal with that yourself yeah mm-hmm. and, and again even though this story is um very heterosexual and talks about men they are not the center of the story like you don't want to know more about these men you want to know more about her and i think it takes a very skilled writer to do that where you you have sent you have placed men as a a subject of your story yet it still centers the the woman in it so I don't know if that was the writer's intention in doing this collection of stories, but I think she did a brilliant job because the men are very much present, but they are not the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's very obvious throughout the book as well. And then in this very last story, when Eddie Levert comes I this felt, story made me cry. Yeah, I found it really, really, really sad and heartbreaking. It's the story of a woman who is the caretaker for her mom who has, uh, would it be dementia? Can you confirm, Jerry? I'm going to look back if it's dementia or Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's probably Alzheimer's. But she's the care. She's the caretaker of her ailing mom, who is rapidly losing her memory. Uh, but the one memory that is very constant for her is her meeting Eddie Lavert. I don't know if people know who Eddie Lavert is, but he is a well-known singer from back in the day. He was in a group. I'm trying to remember what group it was. But anyway, so she she remembers very vividly, very clearly when she went to a concert with his group and her meeting Eddie Levert. And in her in her old age and and losing her memory, she is constantly 
desiring getting ready because Eddie Levert is supposed to come to her today and he's going to take her out to dinner. And so it's the one thing that keeps replaying in her mind. And this is also another story of a mother-daughter relationship. Actually, Jorraine, it's in this story that the daughter is dark-skinned and the mother is light. Ah, yeah. That just came to me because that was a huge tension between them um, and Mm -hmm. the thing that really caused a massive rip between that mother and that daughter where the daughter constantly felt belittled, condescended to, and just uncared for by her mother because of this, because she came out dark skin and the other Pitney did come out light with very pretty hair. Like she deliberately would try to have light skinned kids. And yes. that is not uncommon. At all. At all. Very, very common. Uh, so yeah, I found this story to be very, very difficult to read because as much as the mother before she began losing her memory was uh you'd say a bad mother <laughs> um definitely think, complicated complicated that's the word that's the word um, a complicated mother it's still of course very heartbreaking to witness someone uh, slowly lose themselves and lose their identity and their sense of awareness and then it's also difficult to for the daughter witnessing this grieving this because she also knows that there's a time that will come where her mom will go but also having these very complex relationships, these complex feelings rather, where she's the main caretaker of her mother where, and the favorite child, which is her brother, her, one, her mother remembers him whenever he drops by and two, he doesn't put in a lot of effort into caring for the mother. So Any she's hurt, none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like he complains her. about taking care of her. And like she has to beg him, like, can you please come over and stay with your mother for two hours so that I can just be out of the house, the house for a few. And so we see this very, she like she's holding all of these complicated feelings, all of these complex feelings and just really unsure of how to place them and where to place them because... She, at a point, she didn't have anybody to exercise those feelings with. She didn't have a place where she could, she could really feel her feelings and feel the way she's felt until she reconnected with a high school friend. I don't know if they were lovers when they were in high school, but they became lovers in adulthood. But yeah, it was just a very, it was a very sad, it was a very just sad kind of thing to see yeah this is another story that felt like a little bit personal definitely nowhere as close as the physicist one uh, but um, my grandma the one that's still alive uh, she's been rapidly losing her memory and getting to know her now as this lady who sometimes forgets who I am but she still feels very comfortable around me like she enjoys being around me 
is very interesting because it, it feels nice to know that this person didn't just like me because I was related to her. Now she doesn't really remember me, but she's just like, yeah, this person's nice to be around. Um, so I, I, it, it's a whole new, it's a whole new phase. Uh, but I know who, it doesn't affect me as much as I know it affects a lot of her children because over Christmas she hadn't, she didn't recognize a lot of her own children. And it was something that was painful for her because she's like, these people keep saying that I should know them, but I don't really know them. And sometimes she'd remember, sometimes she'd forget. And it's really painful because I know that a lot of my aunts and, well, mostly my aunts, not so much my uncles, would have had, like, a lot of unresolved things with her. Mm-hmm. And they still hold on to that. Um, and just like the grandma in this, just like the mom in this story, um, my grandma was very colorist. I remember my grandma telling me a lot when I was younger that I'd be a lot prettier if I was more light-skinned or if my nose was more pointy. And that didn't affect me that much. Definitely not that I'm not older, but I know that's something that would have affected her daughters as they grew up. So reading this story, a lot of what came to mind for me was how important it is to begin the process of healing a lot of those mother-daughter relationships, especially a lot of these relationships you have with your your ancestors that are still alive. I know a lot of us have these these big talks about connecting with the ancestors and all these things, but yeah, a lot of them are still alive. You need to talk to them. You need to heal whatever it is that's going on because being able to watch someone mind um someone's spirit like really their mind go and and watch that part of them die while their body is still here is a whole other level of painful uh, and and it's something that i i really i really empathized with this character there's there's a lesson there for a lot of people especially people now who have very touchy relationships with their parents you don't want it to get to this stage and you don't want a lot of the things to be unsaid. And I think that's the thing that I felt a lot while reading this story, a lot of what she felt, a lot of the things that she wanted to talk to her about. And I guess she kind of thought that at some point it would have been resolved. It, it, it won't be. So don't let things go unsaid. And even if your healing doesn't come from this other person, recognizing that they did something wrong you definitely need to heal yourself go and figure that out because it will just become more painful if the person dies whether they physically die or mentally they're no longer the person that they are anymore that that the latter to me just seems really frustrating mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that Jorian. is that something that you want to keep in this episode i don't know Yeah, I think I'm fine with it. Fun fact, my grandma recognized me over Christmas because I was wearing shorts and she's like, you need them naki? Come here. (laughs) And I was like, really? That is how you remember me? Your your grand picnic would not need them? It's hilarious. 
Yeah. Listen, older people are just yeah, yeah. yeah. As like just anything will come out yeah, of my mouth. But yeah, I wanted to I wanted to also add to what you're saying because it's so essential. But and I'm glad that you said this part at the end where it's if you don't get your healing from them in terms of them acknowledging how they've hurt you or acknowledging how uh, they played a part in your in your trauma, still keep continue on that 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 path of healing because at the end of the day you want to feel you want to feel peace within yourself and you want to be able to exist in a way that feels good for you and where they don't want to be a part of your journey and honestly more often than not especially if they're a parent they likely will not admit to or accept that they played a part in how difficult your life has been for you like how difficult things have been for you and how how they've shaped your perception of yourself and how you how they've shaped how you navigate the world so even if they even if they don't accept it and they don't they don't want to acknowledge it and even if they don't want to heal their own traumas you know yours is yours to heal because you want to show up in the world as best as you can and you want to show up in a way that feels authentic and good for you so do that yeah. all right let's wrap up yeah. by the way ashley left as you can see yeah yeah i saw that i don't know if we could like add her do like a last clip like oh sorry i was so quiet in the end blah 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 i'm looking mm-hmm. forward to reading it and all of that fun stuff well we can propose that and add it yeah. Um, do you want us to just wrap up ourselves yeah yeah all right so overall how did you write the book christina since you did finish it how was it how was it for your 2022 read or intro for rebel women lit this year i think in terms of star ratings i'd give it a five um I, i really would um i don't see any reason to not give it a five if we're rating things because I really did enjoy it fully and I I actually think this has helped me with uh, reading so far like it's made me excited to venture into books I mean I'm always excited to read but uh, we know how reading slums are we know how sometimes it can be difficult to to read as much as you want or to and by as much, I don't mean in terms of volume or quantity of books, but just making the time to read. And I think this being one of the books that I started the year with, it's honestly kind of opened my appetite to read a bit. Because I've been reading, girl, like me, I read. <laughs> me, I read hotel. Um, I'm, I'm really appreciative of that. Um, and I'm excited to read more from Disha. If this is the way that she writes... Uh, in this kind of very thoughtful, gentle and honest way and also extremely hilarious and witty and smart, then I don't see me not enjoying or picking up or purchasing another one of her books. 
Yeah, same. There are like one or two like problematic parts of the book for me. And mm, I, I think in the hands of the right academic, it kind of could be a bit of a self-critique. Some of that has to do with how she presents uh, dark-skinned people and fat people mm-hmm. in her stories. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it was something that was done intentionally because that's just the overall view of how yeah. we, we view um, mm-hmm. fat people, fat black women. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if the writer just has a blind spot when it comes to writing that. But regardless, I think this book was very well crafted. I think she tackled so many themes that would have just fell flat if it was in another writer's hands. It would have felt Mm -hmm. too academic. The way she crafted the different stories, the voices, the formats that she played with. Fantastic. From just leaving instructions to letter writing to diary entries with commentary. I think this was fantastic I want to say salad, but I know a lot of people don't like salads. <laughs> but it was it's such a great buffet of stories that centered black women and all their complexities. And even the stories that dealt with grief and trauma. I know we talked about those. They weren't heavy. They were dramatic. Mm-hmm. But there were still moments of joy. There are still moments of intense pleasure, and yeah, I five out of five stars. Obviously, I liked it because I picked it for book club, and I didn't pick it uh-huh. in a tongue-in-cheek way, where it's like, oh, let's rip this book apart. Like, no, it is fantastic, and I'm I'm looking forward to. I know she's working on a novel now. So I'm very curious as to what it would look like. And I am laughing at all the publishers who did not pick up this book. This book is at a university press. Mm-hmm. And big up West Virginia University for getting it out. And I'm so glad that this book is doing so well. So many awards, so much recognition. She's same, getting same, same. everything that she deserves and more. Honestly, yeah. I think it's such an amazing feat to be able to manage the kind of themes that she did in such a succinct way and still handle them with care and with depth because it's very easy to just especially if you're doing collections it's very easy to flatten a story or flatten a theme when you're doing short stories but I feel like she managed to make a lot of these themes feel very deep and not heavy as you mentioned but still enough where you feel like she's done it justice so thank you Disha so looking forward to seeing her grow yeah Mm -hmm. same same and next month we're reading one of your favorite books yes what a book full of drama Jesus Christ (laughs) we're reading Baba Seji's Seven wives is seven. seven no, it's four wives and have, but Baba Sage's wives, the secret lives of Baba Sage's yes. wives. Four wives and have, yeah, four wives. This I, I did have seven, but yeah, I'm very excited to reread 
this because I remember just reading this book and thinking, what a friggin' mess. And if you watch Nollywood, <laughs> because I, if I remember correctly, this book is based in Nigeria. If you watch Nollywood, it's like a Nollywood drama unfolding in front of you. So that book is messy and I love it because it also is so complex, just like mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. It's so complex. It's so deep. It's also so well written. Yes. You really have to ban these poets from writing novels. Let me just show up, everybody. And the book we're reading after that as well, His Only Wife, is also pretty messy. Really messy. I know David wants to read it, and I thought it would be good to follow up. So lots and lots of messy. I'm wondering if I should read that first before rereading Baba Seji. I don't know. Up to you. you. Probably will. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. I know this is a pretty long episode for such a short book, and we tried so mm-hmm. hard to keep it succinct. <laughs> but it's such... wanting to do an hour and a half. But it's such a rich text, and I'm hoping that you pick it up, um, you share it, and I think it's a great gift to give someone because you'll be able to talk to them about it for hours on end. And obviously, it's a great book club pick. So. And people love messy books. So. People love messy books, but not just messy for messy sake. Yes. Messy with great complexity and mm-hmm. texture. Like a very rich cake. That's how I would that's how I feel about this book. Lots of food references. I am hungry, can you tell? <laughs> uh so yeah, I'll see you all at book club. Become a member. Become a member, join us at book club, come to our retreats if you're in Jamaica or plan your trip to Jamaica to come to our retreats, trying to do one every quarter. I'm really excited about this. I'm very excited. It sounds so good. Yeah. Hope you can come. Maybe nice. I just might make sure that I do. I think you should. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye, See you at book club.